Good morning. A couple of announcements as we get started this morning. Uh, reminding our, our online listeners that uh, for those who would like uh, website cards to share, just uh, send us an email address with a, with a mailing address and we will send you those cards for free. And uh, we've had uh, people from all over the world uh, uh, asking for those cards and sharing them. And the board has voted this week that we're going to resurrect uh, the Healing the Mind seminar DVD set uh, for a short time to give away to groups that would like to share in their community. So um, we've ordered uh, 100 sets. If you're in our listening audience and would like some of those sent to your community so you can share as in your ministry, let us know and we will ship you some of those uh, DVD sets. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to study today. Lord, we want this message about you to go forward and lighten the world. We want to see lives changed. We invite you uh, to participate with us this morning, heal our minds, give us discernment, and open avenues of communication that each of us uh, can find in our sphere of influence people to share this good news about you with. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number one in our new quarterly Worship. As we start this uh, quarter on worship, I thought we should start with the introduction. The first paragraph quotes the first of the three angels' messages. Fear God, give glory to him for the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and sea and the fountains of water, so forth. And then the next paragraph states the following. First, John sees an angel having the everlasting gospel. The gospel of the everlasting covenant. The good news that Jesus Christ would come, take upon himself humanity, and in that humanity die as a substitute for the sins of the world. Foundational then to all our worship needs to be Jesus' death in our behalf. Worship should center on our response to the substitutionary work of Christ, which includes not only the cross, but his ongoing ministry for us in the heavenly sanctuary. Thoughts about that? Think it through. An angel is coming from heaven with the eternal gospel. The eternal gospel. What is the eternal gospel? The lesson is suggesting that this eternal gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. The eternal gospel is the good news about God and his government and character. Is the eternal gospel good news only for eternity future? Or is the eternal gospel good news for all eternity, both past and future? Okay. Was it eternally true in the past that Christ had died for our sins? Was the good news in existence in heaven when Lucifer started his rebellion? Was the eternal gospel still eternally good and eternally true? Yes. Okay. Um, and as Margaret suggests, the eternal gospel is the good news about God himself, his government, his methods and principles. The lesson says foundational to our worship needs to be Jesus' death on our behalf. Yes? The one gospel is a demonstration or an outworking of the first one. The gospel that Christ is our, re- our refuge and our restoration is an outworking of the eternal gospel. Oh, I like how you said that, an outworking. So we could say built upon. So then we're back to the question of foundational. Or evidence of. I like that too. So foundational then uh, to the gospel is our most foundational focus of worship, Jesus dying for us, or something that Jesus dying for us reveals? Something that Jesus dying for us reveals. Yes, you see the difference. And, and it may sound subtle, but it, I think it has a profound significance, doesn't it? What was foundational 
to the worship of Adam and Eve before they sinned. Did Adam and Eve worship in the Garden of Eden before they sinned? Was foundational to that worship Jesus' substitutionary death? No. What was foundational to their worship? God's character, who he was. This is foundational to our worship. It seems to me, anyway. Did the foundation for Adam and Eve's worship change after they sinned? Or was it still built on who God is? His character, his governance, his methods. So, if we read John 17, 3... This is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ from the all sent. John 17, 5, Jesus said that his mission, Father, I've completed the work you've given me to do. I've made you known unto men. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, that we wage war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. Romans 1, 18 through 35 tells us that if we exchange the truth about God for a lie, the mind becomes dark and depraved and futile. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So, um, with these ideas in mind, I'm just trying to build a case as we go into worship for the whole quarter, the worship, what does it need to be founded upon? It seems that it always needs to be centered upon God. See, one of the things that, that happens, and I'm going to tell you, I've heard some other um, well-known worldwide Adventist speakers point this out, that Adventism has been tempted to build a, a system of doctrines. You know, Sabbath, state of the dead, sanctuary, all these things that are disconnected from the actual truth about who God is. I mean, we can go and just prove Seventh-day Sabbath without even talking about who God is. We can just show from the Bible, boom, Seventh-day Sabbath. We can prove state of the dead. And we can do this, but the point that he was making was that all of these doctrines have their greatest power when they're connected to the central truth, the nature and character of God and his methods and governments. This is foundation. And that, that, that we want to be pointing back to that. So I'm suggesting as we go into this, this month's quarter, this, this uh, quarterly, that uh, we always want to keep center what really is foundational, and that is God's nature and character. Well, this is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68. And we're... we're, we're Contrasting the idea, God's character and government and nature is central. Christ's sacrificial substitutionary death is foundational and central. This is, uh, in, in other words, the salvation of man. Page 68 in Patriarchs and Prophets. But the plan of redemption had a broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded. But it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. To this result of his great sacrifice, its influence upon the intelligences of other worlds, as well as upon man. Notice, its influence. You know, that's got, that, that word has gotten a very, very pejorative connotation in circles around our group. Pejorative means negative. It's bad to say this. Some will say, your moral influence. Your moral influence. What does she say that Christ said? He said, the results of this great work, um, this great sacrifice, it's influence upon the intelligences of other worlds as well as upon man. The Savior looked forward to when just before his crucifixion, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all to me. The act of Christ in dying for the salvation of man would not only make heaven accessible to men, 
But before all the universe would justify God and his son in their dealing with the rebellion of Satan, it would establish the perpetuity of the law of God and would reveal the nature and the results of sin. And then I'm going to read one more quote to you. Signs of the Times, July 12, 1899. And this is profound as well, especially when people make the primary issue, the foundational issue, saving us. It was in order that the heavenly universe might see the conditions of the covenant of redemption that Christ bore the penalty in behalf of the human race. The throne of justice must be eternally and forever made secure, even though the race be wiped out and another creation populate the earth. Did you hear that? There's something more important going on here than you and me. And I know for us narcissistic human beings, it's really hard to believe that something can be more important in this universe than me and you. Because if you look at, at Christianity, look at religions, how much of it puts self at the center? It's about us. It's about cleansing us from our sins. It's about saving us. It's about redeeming us. It's about me, 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 my salvation. Are you saved? Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? Have you been saved? It's all about putting self at the center. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but one of the things we try and do for, is to reorient that and put self out of the center and put God in the center. Put the truth about him back in the center. So even though the race be wiped out and another creation populate the earth, by the sacrifice of Christ, what Christ was about to make, all doubt would forever be settled. And the human race would be saved if they would return to their allegiance. Christ alone could restore honor to God's government. We should ask why. Why could Christ alone? I mean, there's some profound things. You should hopefully asking questions we're reading along. The cross of Calvary would be looked upon by unfallen worlds, by the heavenly universe, by satanic agencies, by the fallen race, and every mouth would be stopped. I think that's where every mouth would be stopped. Stopped from what? What are they going to be stopped from? Yeah, stop from misrepresenting God, from saying all the God's an abuser, God's a power monger, God's a wrathful God, he's angry, he'll punish you. They'll be stopped when you actually look at the cross and see, wait a minute, who was there on the cross? And what did he just let his creatures do to him? And did he use his power to stop them? Then how can we turn around and say he'll use his power to kill you? I mean, it's really crazy. If you actually look at the evidence... All mouths will be stopped. It makes an in, in making his infinite sacrifice, Christ would exalt the honor of the law. He would make known the exalted character of God's government, which could not in any way be changed to meet uh, man in a sinful condition. And you understand what that means. Why could the law not be changed to meet man in a sinful condition? Because it's, it's from God's character, yes. And from God's character, when the God of love began to construct and build the universe, he built it to run in harmony with his own nature. All things hold together in unity with him. Okay, And so, it'd be like saying, we can't change the law of respiration to meet a smoker in their smoking. You can't do it. If somebody ties a plastic bag over their head, you can't say, well, we can change the law to meet that person with a plastic bag tied over their head. No, we can't do it. The law cannot change. The person out of harmony with the law is out of harmony with life. And the only way to, to live is to be put back in harmony with the law, where you can live. The law can't be changed. We have to be changed. So, could not make... In any way, that could not, uh, the law cannot be changed to meet man in his sinful condition. Who was able to describe the last scenes of Christ's life on earth, his trial and the judgment hall, his crucifixion? Who witnessed these scenes? The heavenly universe, God the Father, Satan and his angels. Wonderful events took place in the betrayal of Christ. The ent- enmity of the apostate against the commander of all heaven must be seen. Notice, wonderful events took place. What took place? The enmity of the apostate against the commander of all heaven must be seen. Satan revealed himself as a liar and fraud. That's what was seen. Satan exposed 
that he was not in harmony with God's methods and principles. It must be shown that Satan's mercy is cruelty. What a battle this, what a battle was this between Christ and Satan. It was waged up to the very time of the resurrection. Yay, up to the time of the ascension. Then it was transferred to Christ's followers and today Satan wars against them. How does Satan war? How does he wage war? By misrepresenting God. By misrepresenting God. And how? And now that Christ has ascended to heaven, how is he waging war against Christ's followers? Lies about God. Confusion. Think about this. Are we involved in a war? Yeah. A spiritual war? Yeah. Yes, it's over ideas, concepts. Yes. You think he can to keep you away from focusing on God? On the truth about God. Anything he can, um, including politics. I don't mean, yeah, state politics for sure, but what about church politics? Can that, can that be something that divides us and keeps us focusing on something other than God? Sure. So what is foundation? Go ahead. We sometimes say, would it be good news if God were not a good God? It would be good news if we could live forever with God and he was like Satan says he is. Yeah. Yeah. Would it even be good news if God is wonderful, but Christ had not come to die to show us and the universe that? What, what, would it be good news if... Uh, yeah, help me with that. If God is really just like he says he is, that's still good news, but the question is, would we know it? Right. So that's that makes the cross such an integral part of that whole good news picture because we didn't know it, the universe wasn't sure, he had to come and show it, and that was part of the good news about God. Does it make sense to you that if, if uh, we have bought into lies and distortions, we have ideas in our head that God is something other than what Christ has revealed him to be, someone to be feared and, and, to, uh, and to be intimidated by and to, be, and to not trust ultimately, that was Satan's goal, to undermine trust in God. If, if that's our concept, and the cross was, was the was the cornerstone to God's response that that would destroy Satan's power. Remember at the cross, uh, Christ said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw on to me. It's time for the judgment of this world, time for the, the, the prince of this world to be cast down. It says in Hebrews that um, by his death he destroyed him, holds the power of death that is the devil. So the cross was God's means of destroying the devil and his power. Okay, So this was, this was the ultimate expression of truth, the revelation needed to destroy the lies that hold us in bondage. All these things are true. Does it make sense to you then that if you were the devil, the cross becomes the number one focal point of distortion? You must center your distortions on what was achieved at the cross. You have to spend your energy. You can't ignore the cross. You have to embrace the cross, but spin it into a direction that misrepresents God. Change its meaning. Change its meaning. Has that been done? Yeah. How? How has that been done? How is the cross presented in a way that actually misrepresents God instead of reveals God to man? A legal system. Okay, a legal system. God killed his son at the cross. That's a classic one. God, in order to be just, had to execute Christ at the cross. Yeah. A get-home free ticket. A get-home free ticket. Yeah. A legal necessity. A legal necessity. Yes, this is, this is the twisting of what actually transpired there. And this, is, and this is why so many people, and this is why I believe if you look at the history and the flow of time from sin, inception and earth and Eden, down through the course of time, if you can in your mind's eye kind of put out that timeline and see the, the ebb and flow of events on planet earth as, as 
God is working to reveal truth. Satan is working to darken the minds of men. You see the battle before Christ's incarnation. Satan is warned in Eden that uh, a Savior is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. So Satan immediately begins going about. Now, how is, a, uh, how is uh, the Messiah going to come to crush the head of the serpent? Well, he's going to become part of humanity. How? He's going to take an unwilling woman and force a pregnancy upon her? He's going to have a, volunteer, a voluntary woman who submits and willing to participate in that process. Satan knows this. So what does he do? Well, he works to close all the hearts and minds so nobody will work with God. And this is what you see happening prior to the flood. And prior to the flood, he's almost got everybody in the world hardened to God he can't work through. You see this, this, this going down, 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 down. And then the flood comes, and we start over with Noah's family. And you see then, after Noah's family, things start deteriorating again, idol worship and so forth. He calls Abraham and his people out. And then we see what happens after Abraham and his people out. All the attacks on the, on the Jews and, and, the, and the, uh, again, the in and out of idolatry and so forth. This whole process going on. And then Christ ultimately comes and they have such distorted ideas about God that they crucify Christ at the cross. And then Paul says in Thessalonians that the man of sin is going to arise. Set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. But there's a prophecy from Daniel that says, well, 2300 years, that temple's going to get cleansed. 23 years, the temple's going to be cleansed. What's going to cleanse that temple? The knowledge of God is going to be revealed again. And so as you look at this battle waging, as we near the end of time, there is a, a movement that hits the earth. Malachi prophesies about it, Malachi 4, that, the, that the Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And what did Elijah do? He confronted false God concepts that the nation of Israel, who was metaphorical for the people of God, were worshiping. And he gave a message, hey, God, if God is like this, worship him. If God is like this, worship him. We're giving a message. If God is like this, worship him. If God is like this, worship him. And, and a people has been called at the end of time, as I see it, to give a message to the to people of the world. Hey, make a decision. There's only two God concepts out there, really, only two. God is a God of love, self-sacrificing love, giving of himself that others might live. Or God is a God who is arbitrary, capricious, jealous, selfish, unforgiving, severe, requires something to be done to him in order for him to grant mercy. I mean, that's it. We have a privilege, it seems to me. So foundational to our worship, they go into worship, I think it comes back to knowing the truth about God as Jesus is real. This is what we build our worship on. Third paragraph in in our introduction still. When we approach God in worship as a kind of buddy or pal, we degrade him and place ourselves in a role in which we do not belong. Worship should be permeated by a sense of reverence and awe for our God, an attitude that will give us the humility and surrender so needed for true worship. What do you think about that? What is another name for a buddy or a pal? Yeah, that's the first one that popped into my mind. I, I threw some others in the notes too. Comrade. Um, going to Australia, hopefully, mate, okay, uh, and a chum, but, but friend comes to mind. And Jesus in John fifteen fifteen said these words, I no longer call you servants because servants, a servant does not know, I think this is true, does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I've learned from the Father, I've made known to you. And one of the founders of our church in Faith I Live By, page 226, wrote the following, If we keep the Lord ever before us, allowing our hearts to go out and thank 
thanksgiving and praise to him. We shall have a continual freshness in the religious life. Our prayers will take the form of a conversation with God as we would talk with a friend. Hmm. So what do you think about this idea? We shouldn't approach God as a friend. Yes. Jesus talked about his father, Abba, and I understand that's like daddy. Mm-hmm. There's an intimacy there. there. There's a sense of feeling at peace. You know someone. And so there are times when, when you look at a father, or as a friend even, and there are times when you respect them. And there are times when you, you are in a sense of reverence. But there are also there's such an intimacy, there's such a completeness in the relationship you know the whole aspect of the relationship. So let, let's try and tease apart the elements that I think the lesson brings forth that, that, that we should apply and be aware of and be legitimate, and the elements that we don't want to misunderstand. Isn't it true that we should remain in admiration and in awe of God all the time? Absolutely. Does God want us, to, though, to be in terror and dread of him? No. no. Can you be a friend of someone you admire and respect? Yes. So what God, would God, in the lesson is suggesting, I think legitimately, that what we want to avoid is seeing God as an equal of ours. Like a pal or a buddy that is equal to us in abilities and knowledge and in, in perceptions and in um, wisdom. Um, you know, he, he's no different than me. Uh, that would be a mistake, wouldn't it? Yes. But does God want us to approach him in such a way that there is a um, royal barrier that exists between us and him? Do you understand what I mean by a royal barrier? In the Dark Ages, or even in the Middle Ages, uh, how would a commoner be able to approach the king? Could he go up and shake his hand? Could he have a conversation? Could he look him in the eye? Have a conversation? Ask him a direct question? What happened if he tried? Off with, his head. Off with his head. When the king would walk in, if we were back living 400 years ago in one of the, uh, you know, or 500, 1,000 years ago, somewhere in the Europe in uh, one of the, um, you know, uh, monarchies over there, and the king walked in right now, what would happen? It depended on the government. We'd either all stand or we'd all kneel. <laughs> one of the two. We'd either all stand or kneel. <laughs> That's what would happen, right? Mm-hmm. Now, would they do that because they stood because they were, they were just with such incredible awe, or is it primarily because of incredible fear? And when, when, when we see God, I suspect we will, in admiration, either stand up in praise or throw our crowns before his feet and fall down in, in, in reverence and worship. I think we will do that. But what we, the reason we'll do that? Love. Love. Admiration. Oh, he's so incredible. It's, it's just such a privilege. Will it be because we're so terrified, we're trembling in the corner, and that he's got, the, that he's got his um, royal you know, uh, Praetorian guard with flaming swords uh, coming with him, that if we don't, he's going to push everybody down? Yes? One thing that's interesting about that in the European languages, I don't know, English, the, the thou, and uh, French, and German, the pronoun for God is always the familiar. It's not the... Uh, formal pronoun. You always use the familiar for, uh, pronoun that you would use in the family or with your close friend. 
Isn't that what God wants? I mean, this is what Jesus is saying. He says, I no longer call you servants. And think about a servant-master relationship. When the master walks in, the servants stand or kneel. When the master says they need something, the servants obey. There's obedience. But do the servants actually understand the master's methods, principles, uh, plan? Does God want us to actually be intelligent partners of his to understand what he's doing and why? Yes. And so... No one would suggest that by being a friend, we are not humble or in awe or respectful or serving. See, there's this false dichotomy that those who don't like this message will try and present. And they'll say, God, we are to be servants, not friends. We are to serve. Well, is there a difference between friendly service and a serving friend? Is there a difference between friendly service and a serving friend? The motivation... Is it required because of your status as a servant, or is it, is it a gift out of your heart and um, The motivation to serve? If you're a servant, yes. it's your job. Yeah. You may, you may love and have all for the master, but it's still your job description. If it is a friend, the pure motivation is that of unselfish love. Exactly. And this is what God wants. He wants us to restore his law in our hearts. His law is a law of love. He wants to put his character in our hearts. We are partakers of the divine nature. We have the mind of Christ restored so that it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And we live his life. This is what it means to be a, a Christian, clothed in the robe of his righteousness and so forth. Yes? Well, throughout the Bible, we see people interacting with God, and we can look and see what happens. I mean, Moses comes to the burning bush. He's asked to take off his shoes. Uh, so nothing comes between him and God, for example, to... This is hallowed ground. We want you to treat this especially different from your normal life. And yet, they had open, even argumentative conversations with him, explaining their fears, their needs, their their confusion. I, I like it. I like it. No, it's, I, I, I'm so glad you brought it up. God asked Moses to go confront Pharaoh. Moses said, "Okay." And Moses said, "I ain't going. No way." And, I mean, there was, as you said, there was a real argument and debate to the point that God finally got frustrated with Moses and said, okay, Aaron will go and be your mouthpiece for you. Okay? And it wasn't a better deal to have Aaron along in the end, was it? No, it wasn't a better deal there. God knew it, but he says, okay. So he meets us where we are. Uh, I also like the, I'm going to wipe out Israel. Start over. No, put my name out of the book, Moses says. Or Abraham comes to Abraham, friend of God. I'm going to destroy Sodom. Oh, no, far be it from you. The Lord of all the earth must do what is right. And the Lord said to you, how dare you question me? No, he was described as a friend. I mean, really, you're exactly right. Thank you for pointing that out. Ken. Tim, I've always wondered how spiritualism could pervade Christianity to the extent that, that our writers, particularly Ellen White, and I think clearly the Bible suggests that will towards the end of time, and quite frankly, I think that the misconception that you have been talking about this morning of regarding the cross as being a central expression of self, you know, centered on us as narcissistic human beings, is, is actually the linchpin of, of the uh, spiritualism belief that, that has actually made the inroad into Christianity. Because clearly, in our understanding, through Ellen White, spiritualism is a mixing of the profane and the sacred. In spiritualism, 
There is no difference between holy and unholy, ultimately. It all becomes semantic. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Next paragraph in our introduction still, we make it to the lesson. It says, we are also told to give glory to him. What is crucial here is that we worship, that worship be about God and not about ourselves. Uh, we have to make sure that worship is not people-centered, culture-centered, or personal need-centered, but God-centered. We worship God, not ourselves. Hence, worship must be about him, about giving glory to him, and not about music, culture, and worship styles. Thoughts about that? Why? I think, I think it's true that worship must be about him. How do, you th- how do you hear the application of what they're saying? In practice, what does this paragraph suggest gets practiced out? There's one way. Well, it, 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 I mean, maybe I'm mishearing it, but it sounds to me, worship is when we gather together at church, and we do church, and church needs to be focused on God. And that's how we give glory to him. By focusing our conversations and, and, and worship and music on God, not about uh, us getting up there and taking credit for our entertainment or all these things. I think there's, clearly there's truth in that, no question. But I wanted to read you something out of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting verse 22. Thinking about, and remember context here. And we're going to come to an issue uh, in the next paragraph about judgment. Remember context of Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. This is Ezekiel chapter 36 beginning in verse 22. Therefore says, therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O Israel, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. Okay, give glory to him. The hour is going to, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. So who's profaned God's name? Israel. Who's Israel today? Yeah. It says, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name that you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am Lord. How will the nations know he's Lord? By something he's going to do, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Before, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and you will be uh, and all from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Is it possible that Revelation 14 is talking about give glory to him, we glorify him by allowing him to reproduce his character in us? more than just gathering together once a week to sing the songs focused on him or hear a sermon focused on him, that we actually are partakers of the divine nature of the law written on the heart and mind. Uh, are, it's like somebody with cancer, terminal cancer, a doctor gives them a cure and the cancer is in remission. That patient who is now cancer-free is evidence of the healing power of the doctor. That patient is a powerful witness to the cure that that doctor offers, isn't he? Now, what, what credit does a patient get to claim? I cured myself? No, a patient gets no credit. All the credit goes to the doctor. This is our privilege. We get the privilege of letting Christ restore in us his character of love, live that character of love, and all the credit goes to the one who lives in us. I'm going to suggest that's what Revelation is primarily talking about when we give glory to him. It's more than just singing praise him, praise him. 
Yes, no? You, you, you agree? And then the next paragraph says, We are told to fear God and give glory to him. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. Christ is not only the redeemer, he is also the judge. A judge who knows all our deepest and darkest secrets. A judge who knows the innermost recesses of the heart. Wow, that's encouraging, isn't it? See, you know, if they would have written this a different way, they would have said, he's not only our redeemer, he's also our heavenly physician. And he knows the deepest and darkest recesses of the, of the depths of the sickness and the terminal state of sin and how far the malignancy has reached. And he knows right where to find it so he can cure it. That would really encourage us, wouldn't it? No. He's a judge, and he knows our deepest, darkest secrets. A judge knows the innermost recesses of our heart. As we worship, we need to do, do so with a sense of accountability to God for what we do and a realization that we can hide nothing from him. And a fact that should drive us to the cross for our only hope in this judgment. Didn't Christ himself say he came not to judge? John twelve forty seven and 48, Russell's quoting. He says, As for the person who hears the words, my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him in the last day. So, do we believe Jesus... Or are we so stuck into a tradition that we've been taught from childhood that we insist on telling Jesus, well, you didn't really mean what you said, Jesus. You are going to be the judge, and you are going to sit in judgment over us. So when you say you're not going to judge, well, you were a little confused back then, Lord. Let's also change one other word to one that's in the Bible, and instead of having it drive us to the cross, he will draw all men unto me. Exactly. Do you notice, again, Satan works to distort the cross. Jesus said, I will draw on, on beautifully said, the, 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 distorted, the distorted view of, of the atonement is that the fear of the judgment and him knowing our secrets and how he will sit in judgment will drive us to the cross out of fear. It's a totally different reason for going. I love it. Thank you for pointing that out. So, how do we understand Jesus' words in John 12? When he says, I will not judge, but there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not keep except my words, the very word which I spoke will condemn him in the last day. What does it mean? It's really, 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 really straightforward. What are the words that Christ always speaks? Truth. Words of truth. Words of truth. Now, imagine this scenario. Every one of us in this room are born infected with a terminal condition. Pick the terminal condition. We can say HIV for, for sake of example. We're all born HIV infected from birth. And now a a group has come along and they have a cure, a remedy for our condition. Everyone in here is claiming to take the remedy, but only some of us actually are. Now, do we have to have a courtroom to sit in judgment to determine who's actually taking the remedy and who's not? Or will it become self-evident? That's what's going on, guys. We are all terminally sick in sin. And uh, we are all out of harmony with the way God built life to run. Uh, only, uh, only life exists in harmony with the, his perfect law. That's it. Those of us who accept Jesus Christ, open the heart to him, the spirit comes and takes all that Christ has achieved, reproduces it in us. We get a new heart and spirit. The motives are changed. Our, our thoughts are brought into unity with his. Our mind becomes in unity with his. We live his life, it says. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We're transformed in the inner being to be like Christ. And the last day, it will become self-evident. Those who, when Christ appears in his glory, 
are going to run and hide and beg for the mountains to follow them, to hide from them from the face of him who sits on the throne. Why will they be doing this? Will he be looking at some of us with a smile and some of us with a stern, horrible rebuke on his face? Is God two-faced? Or is it the same God? What's the difference? It's in the character of the people in his presence. What did Ellen White say? Well, first off, Scripture says in Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Ellen White said if Christ would have come with the glory that he had shared with the Father before his incarnation, if he had come back then with that glory, not, not having veiled it in humanity, he would have destroyed those he came to save. Which, is she saying that he would have come with the glory that he had before the Father? He would have come with anger and wrath, and, and his attitude would have been mean and severe. No, his attitude would have been just as loving and gracious and kind. But unhealed characters and hearts and minds cannot survive in the unveiled glory of God. So what is the judgment? The judgment is simply this. We have a terminal condition, and the truth of our condition determines our ultimate destiny, judges us. We either have partaken of Christ and accepted his healing, or we have not. Yes? So you're saying judgment is rather like the end of a double-blind study a research paper, a research project on whether something is effective or not, and judgment is the final summation of what happened when people took it and didn't. Yeah, the, the actual truth of the reality of our condition itself judges us. We either are in harmony with Christ or we're not. I mean, isn't that the ultimate bottom line, guys? Yes? If um, lab studies are done on animals that have ingested fluorescein or haven't ingested fluorescein, a special light exposed on them will very clearly show which one has done that because one will glow and one will not. Oh, I love this. This is great. I wish we had those. We could do a children's story with that. Okay? These two lab animals, one little lab animal stole some cookies, one little lab animal did not. Okay? One little lab animal uh, said that he didn't, and so did the other one. Well, which one will happen in the judgment, right? The light shines on, light of truth, and it reveals itself. I mean, that's it. That's great. I love that. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, I love that. <clears throat> Wait, what happens if we have another little lab animal that stands in the way of the light? Oh, never mind. You understood what I was saying, didn't you? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so, then what does it mean in Revelation 14 when it talks about the hour of God's judgment has come? He's being judged. Yes. I mean, see, traditionally, again, the, the, the turn that we put on things, does it draw you in trust, in warmth? Are you drawn to a stern judge waiting to punish? As Christ said, if I, if I be lifted up, will draw awe to me. Are you drawn to that? No. Who wants, to see, who wants us to see God in this way? God, Christ, Satan does not want us to be drawn to Christ. And so... In the war in heaven, initiated by Lucifer, it started over allegations about God. So imagine this. You're in, a, you're in a marriage, and someone comes to you and makes allegations about your spouse. You love your spouse, but they make allegations. Your spouse is being unfaithful. Your spouse is being unloyal. Now, do you just simply believe the allegations? How about they bring pictures of your spouse in the arms of another? They've doctored those on their computer. Very easy to do digitally these days. So, but, but they bring these pictures now. 
will a question arise in your mind? Okay, a question arises. Now, your spouse is innocent, loyal, faithful, and true. They've done nothing. But will, will they, if they love you, need to provide evidence to demonstrate their innocence in order to maintain the trust? Or if you actually believe the lie and you leave your spouse and your spouse wants you back, won't your spouse who is innocent need to go out and prove themselves to win you back? Because you believed a lie. Well, we have believed a lie. God has done nothing wrong. But yet, even though he's done nothing wrong, he is still in the business of proving his innocence. He's the one on trial because he wants to win us back. And that's why we read in um, Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says in the King James Version, um, <clears throat> Let God be true, but every man be a liar, as is written, that thou might be just, justified in thy sayings and might overcome when thou art judged. Or the New American Standard Bible, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Or the good news, you must be shown to be right when you speak. You must win your case when you are being tried. Speaking about God, all this is about God. Um, the New Century Version, so you will be shown to be right when you speak and you will win your case. I mean, the Scripture, if we believe the Scripture, is telling us that God has been accused falsely. We believe those lies. And God loves us so much, he has put himself out there for our judgment of him. And we live in a time in earth's history where God is preparing. A message is going on just like the days of Elijah. When Elijah stood up and said, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. Wasn't he telling the people, Make a judgment about God. Make a judgment. Judge him. Judge him this way or judge him that way, but make a judgment. That's where we are again in earth's history. It's time for us to stand up and call people to judgment. Unfortunately, we have this other thing that is, uh, that is obscuring people's vision that we are at the time of earth history where God is sitting in judgment of us and we're all down here as little plebes in fear hoping that God, when he looks at us, won't see any of our defects, that what he'll see is he'll see the robe of his son hiding us from him. Well, remember the metaphor. Remember the, I, I'm going to say metaphor. Remember the reality. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are born defective in character. You are born terminally ill, you go to the doctor who can cure you. He has a remedy. He will cure you. If you let him, he'll cure you. But you have the idea that if this doctor finds any fault in you, he's going to fire you as a patient and terminate you. So when he comes in, you throw your healthy brother in front of you and say, examine him in my stead. It may, you will never get well. This is what we do. We teach this. Oh, he's not looking at me. He's looking at Christ. No. We should pray what David prayed. Father, search me and see the wicked way in me. Don't hide the wicked way from me. I don't want to hide the wicked way. I want you to see the wicked way. So you can create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Search into the deepest recesses of my soul, into the deepest recesses of my psyche. Find every wicked motive, desire, twisted thought, and purge it. Let the truth reign. Let the Holy Spirit write the law on my heart and mind. This is what we should be praying for. Yes or no? Yes. yes. And so we don't want to hide. God answers that prayer. Sometimes we don't like it. <laughs> we may not like it in the moment when it's exposed, but when it's removed, don't we love it? We do. Yes, I know. It's, and I actually had a young lady in my office yesterday. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I'm fairly restrictive on, on seeing people under a certain age in my office. 
And sometimes I will make a, a, an exception in certain circumstances. And this young lady I had made an exception for because she had uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And it was a straightforward and simple case. And I said, okay, I can't find anybody to treat her. I'll see her because this is a straightforward. But normally if this was a really complicated little thing, I, 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 I wouldn't see somebody this young. Anyway, her mother came in to tell me that ADHD is going well, but she's gotten depressed. But she's afraid to tell you because she's afraid if she tells you, you'll fire her. <laughs> so I, I sat her down and I said, you're my patient now. Now that you're my patient, any problem you have, I'll help you with. You can tell me anything. I said, it's true, it's true. If you would have had a bunch of other problems when we started, I wouldn't have been able to take you on as a patient. But now that you are my patient, um, I'm not going to get rid of you if you have problems. <laughs> okay? So you can tell me anyway. And she was like, oh, wow, that's great. <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay? So... You know, that we, we get these, these, these ideas sometimes. Yeah. And how do we see God? Are we afraid that if, we, if he sees our problems, that he'll get rid of us? Or do we understand that when he sees our problems, his desire is to heal us and restore us? And by the way, is there really a problem you can hide from him anyway? <laughs> okay. Uh, now let's go on to Sabbath lesson. Start our quarterly. That was the introduction. Okay, uh, we're starting worship in Genesis, two classes of worshipers. There's a couple of points we can hit here, I think, fairly quickly. Um, in the first two paragraphs, it says, It has been said that as human beings we need to worship something. That we, uh, What we worship, well, that is a different matter. Though it is, all, it is, it is one fraught with exceeding important, important consequences, especially in the last days when two groups of worshipers are made manifest, those who worship the Creator and those who worship the beast in his image. Yet the seeds of, the, of that contrast can be seen early in the Bible, in the story of Cain and Abel, two kinds of worshipers appear. One worshiping the true God as he is supposed to be worshipped, and one engaging in a false kind of worship. One is acceptable, one is not. That is because one is based on salvation by faith, and the other, as, as are all false forms of worship, is based on works. It is a motif that will appear again and again throughout the Bible. One type of worship is focused solely on God, on his power and glory and grace, the other on humanity and on self. Thoughts. I'm going to tell you that is straight historical perspective. I mean, that is straight orthodoxy, if you want to call it that. This is this is classic presentation of the two issues. I mean, you've, I mean, nothing really threw any red flags up when you heard that. I mean, that is you, how many times you've heard that your whole life, right? Think about it. Away from Genesis three fifteen. Yeah. So was Cain worshiping self? That's the allegation. We're humanity, uh, glory of, and grace, uh, the other on humanity and self. Was Cain worshiping self? When Cain brought his sacrifice, was there an idol of himself there he was worshiping? Was there something amiss in Cain's heart? He didn't really comprehend all that was necessary, but who was he bringing his offering to? Oh, A different God. <laughs> A different God? Yeah. Was it? No. He was bringing it to Beelzebub, Satan, Ashtoreth. Who, who was he bringing his offering to? Who did he have a conversation with about this, this, this idol, this offering? Yeah. That was after the fact. When he brought his offering, he was brought, offering it to a different God. Which God? The same worship that will happen at the end of time. This is out of Christ's Object Lessons, page 152. The Pharisee and the publican represent two great classes into which those who come to worship God are divided. 
their first two representatives are found in the first two children that were born into the world. Cain thought himself righteous, and he came to God with a, came to who? To God with a thank offering only. With a thank offering. He made no confession of sin and acknowledged no need of mercy. But Abel came with the blood that pointed to the Lamb of God. He came as a sinner, confessing himself lost. His only hope was the unmerited love of God. The Lord had respect to this offering, but to the offering, to, but to Cain and his offering, he had not respect. The sense of need, the recognition of our poverty and sin, is the very first condition of acceptance with God. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Patriarchs and prophets, something talks about he came with a rebellious heart. This is it. I mean, this, this is the rebellion. What's the rebellion is, I'm okay. I don't have a need of a Savior. I am thankful, but I don't need transformation, healing, redemption, restoration, recreation within. I am good. Yeah, but she talks about how he knew that God required the lamb, but he brought his first fruits instead of the lamb. Because he was so good. Right, except what I want to give you, whether you want it or not. This is my sacrifice to you, whether it's what, whether it's what you ask for or not. First question, was he bringing the offering to a different God? No. But he brought it with a rebellious heart. And what was, the, what was the nature of the rebellion? Was it not a sense of self-righteousness right. that he didn't believe there was really anything wrong with him? Anybody see the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, the old movie? And the basic premise of the movie is mankind has launched a spaceship that's going to go and start a colony on Jupiter. Okay, and it's a long trip between here and Jupiter. And on the way to the trip, and they have a, a computer that's a, that is first AI artificial intelligence. This is not just a computer like we use, but this is actually a thinking, intelligent, artificial intelligent computer. And on the way to Jupiter, astronauts begin dying. And the last two surviving astronauts finally figure out how the computer has been killing the other astronauts. And when they confront Hal, now I want you to get your mind around the theology here. When they confront Hal, Hal says, computers never make mistakes. Every mistake that's ever been done in relationship to computers has always been traced back to some man-made error. And even, and then he goes, and even if I did make a mistake, you created me, so your fault, it's your fault that I made the mistake. Do you hear the theology here? Cain is saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with me. But even if there were, you, God, made me, it's your fault. Do you see it? And this is, of course, again, one of the other reasons Christ came. As I said in classes a long time ago, one of the things he revealed at the cross, not only was the nature and character of God, which he did, not only did he expose Satan, as we already mentioned, but he also proved by being human and living a perfect life in his humanity, there was no manufacturer's defect. The manufacturer did not create a defective creation. It can't be laid at God's doorstep for Adam and Eve's sin. They can't look like Hal said, well, you made me, so it's your fault. can't be done. But that's what we tend to do. This was his Cain's mindset. He wasn't willing to own his own defective character. He was trying to blame someone. Adam, it wasn't me, it was the woman. <laughs> it's her fault, hello? Externalization, blame. And I see this in my practice all the time. People who will not own their own shortcomings never get well. You can't help a patient who isn't in their own mind, or in their own mind doesn't have a problem. People don't come to the doctor if they don't think there's anything wrong. Christ cannot save somebody who won't open their heart 
for remedy to be saved because they're already well. This is the two classes in the end. Those who humbly recognize they are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Their hearts are defective by nature. They themselves can't fix what's wrong. And Christ has provided for us all that's needed for our transformation, regeneration, and salvation. We open the hearts to experience the indwelling spirit to transform. And those who believe themselves already worthy and that they've done all, or they're either already worthy or they've done all that they're supposed to do to merit They've claimed the blood of Jesus as their legal payment. And they've been baptized in the right way. They've washed the feet and they've, ate and they've eaten the, 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 the bread. They've paid their tithe and they go to church on the right day. So they've got all the bases covered. It's their right now. Yes. Well, the Pharisees were the perfect example of that in Jesus' time when he had the hardest time and had the hardest words to say against the church leaders. Exactly right. Perfect example. They did all the right things but their, heart, their hearts were exactly like Cain's. <laughs> that's the publican. That's what she said, the publican. Uh, thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. I'm righteous. And I brought my thank offering. Big old giant offering that he brought. Yes. All right, Sunday's lesson, and this is what we'll end up closing on, speaks about worship in Eden and references the Sabbath. And it talks about the Sabbath um, as a, uh, an evidence of creation. So, question. What role did the Sabbath have in Eden before sin? Was the Sabbath given in Eden before sin as a day for physical rest? Yes. Did they need physical rest in Eden? No. No. No, we're not asking if the Sabbath was given in Eden. That's not the question. No. The question is, why was the Sabbath given in Eden? Was it a given for a day of physical rest? No. Was it given for church attendance? No. Was it given to remind them of who the Creator was? Yes. Thank you. Hmm. Hmm. There was question, you think, Adam and Eve had about who their creator was? No. Do you think the angels had questions about who the creator was? Was it given as a time for fellowship with God? Yes. What happened on the other six days of the week? In the cool of the day, what happened? Every other, every other week, it said that, that he fellowship with them in the, in the cool of the day. Hmm. Was it given as evidence of God's character, which is worthy of our worship? Yes. Hmm. So how do we connect the Sabbath to worship? One aspect is it does remind us of creatorship, and I think this has to do with a fallen world. And uh, I don't have time to read the quote. It's in the, it's in the notes from Great Controversy, uh, page 436, and where it quotes um, Psalms, several out of Psalms, several out of Isaiah, but it, it makes the point that in Old Testament Scripture, over and over and over again, God references his worth of worship, worthy of worship, because he's the creator. Over and over again, he's the creator. That, uh, there's no question he's the creator. Um, question. Uh, and I think that has to do with our post-fallen world, because I think post-fall have questions arisen about where we came from. Where did mankind arise? Where did our origins start? So I think that the Sabbath and God's foreknowledge uh, became useful after the fall to help remind us of our origins. I don't think Adam and Eve really questioned their origins. I don't. I don't. I don't think they wondered, well, did they evolve out of slime? I don't think that was a question for them. But for us, it has become a huge question, and the Sabbath is helpful in that regard, because there is no um, reason for a seven-day weekly cycle other than God created the earth in seven days. So it helps give us some evidence. But um, while we're thankful, and we're clearly thankful for the Sabbath as a reminder of God as our awesome creator, and we are, 
was which member of the Godhead was the creator? I mean, all of them could have, but which was the actual actualizer who did the creating, according to Scripture? Christ. And does that have any significance in the setting of the great controversy, that it was Christ rather than the other two that did it? Well, who did Satan allege equality with? Christ, yes. And is it important to worship our creator merely because he has the power to create? Is that why we worship him? Does creative, or in other words, to say that is, does creative power alone make God worthy of our worship? This is out of uh, Discovering God's Character by George MacDonald, page 29. What is the deepest in God? His power? No. For power could not make him what we mean when we say God. A being whose essence was only power would be such a negation of the divine that no righteous worship could be offered him. The service, his service would be only fear. Okay? And so, but here's the significance. When you recognize that God is the creator, and you recognize that Christ was the member of the Godhead who did the creating, then what does it tell you when you recognize what happened at the cross? Who was it at the cross? It was the creator. And what does it mean to you that your creator would allow you to kill him and not use his power to stop you? That is what is worthy of our worship. Revelation talks about his creatorship being worthy, but Revelation also says, Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It's seeing his character when we understand he's creator. It's profound. It's profound. It's profound when just another human, we hear the story of somebody sacrificing themselves like the Amish girls uh, in, the, in the school years ago, a few years back, where one would stand up and say, shoot me and let the other ones go. We hear that story and, we, and we're profoundly moved at that kind of love. But how much more so when you recognize the one who holds all worlds in his hand, who created all things, including you and me, who designed, built, constructs, and holds our life in his hands, lets us kill him. That is profound. That is worthy of our worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not just given declarations and claims of your goodness, but you have come to this earth to reveal the truth, to destroy the lies, and we pray that those lies will be rooted out of our hearts and minds. We ask that you will search us to see every wicked way within us. We ask that your spirit will be poured out, the spirit of love and the spirit of truth to transform, recreate, regenerate us to be like you. May, may we have an intimacy with you, a knowledge of you, and may you use us to be lights in this world, to bring people to that hour of judgment, that hour when they will make the right judgment about you and give their lives to you, we pray in your holy name. Amen.